Aidan, welcome. A couple of things I'd like to ask you about just in terms of how you regard what you do. Uh, photographer, DJ, poet, blogger, anything else I'm missing from that equation? I think less blogger because I think that's a phase that people went through to say basically what they did, which is to tell stories. And I think that, or to record stories. I would say the whole thing have an umbrella, which was documentarian. So I would see myself as a filter. I think that I would definitely be the person that you should go to when I'm 65, you know, to 80. You know, I think I might, if I just keep doing what I'm doing food-wise <laughs> and not drink so much and, and not be stressful, would get me into a position where I was in a situation where I should be a teacher, you know, almost like a, like Dead Poets Society or Goodwill Hunting, you know. In, in, but that breaks down into four, you're right. There's the writing, I wouldn't call it poetry, you know, but I really respect early works of Harold Pinter, for instance, who is a really great poet. But a lot of people don't really know that. They just think he's kind of a, a, a playwright, you know. Well, people who read Pinter would know that he's both. But he was, but his whole thing was politics. It wasn't really... So there's always a sub thing. There's always a reason for taking photographs or playing music in a very small room till three o'clock in the morning so that you add something to somebody else's night and it's a cultural thing. I know that that's a cultural thing that I've been a part of this scene for so long now. You know, people have changed the way they speak to me in the last five years. It's weird because I'm, I'm older. I'm an older guy in Dublin, full of DJs who actually don't know how to address the whole genre thing. You know, they, they, they just think they have to put playing this particular sound because they read it on a blog. <laughs> uh, but that's a part of, of telling a story again. So photography is recording a story, DJing is telling a story, and then writing is sort of the fallout from the whole thing. And then if I can collectively put all that into some sort of a... A, a place and I suppose to stay calm is about that uh, I, I also record film footage more now than ever before so that's really good in the sense that it's moving photography I just don't see the difference between photography and film it's it's just moving stills you know um, uh, the, the, the people I've spoken to so far you know you, you pursued certain aspects of, of what it means to express this um, and you've committed to them almost full-time, unless you have a secret job as a, as a you know, a, an office merchant somewhere that you're not telling us about. I'd love to know, wh when did this creative spirit manifest in you as a boy, as a young adult? What, what was the first instinct you had that yeah. the world was different to what you thought it was, you were told it was, and you wanted to maybe express that in, in another way? Gary Newman, I suppose. I suppose I've seen Gary Newman on TV, and I was like... He was just the key keeper because he had filtered, again, all the stuff from Frankfurt, obviously Trans-Europe Express and Giorgio Moroder. And then he had taken all of Blues and Robert Johnson and all the black stuff uh, and, and then distilled it into this aftertime. But it was 1979. It was like, this is the end of the world and here's the guy who's playing at the Berlin Wall instead of, you know, that idiot, David Hasselhoff. I think it should have been Gary Newman who played at the Berlin Wall in 89, 10 years after I'd heard Friends Electric, you know, and I was just like, fuck, look at this guy. He's like, 
he's the future, you know. And I had by- bypassed all of that Colin Doyle stuff, the War of the Worlds, and I was a big fan of science fiction and reading Arthur C. Clarke. And I was into Jean-Michel Jarre, who, funnily enough, didn't instill the same futuristic feel. I think he just looked a bit gay. He had this huge, big, white sort of... Izzy Miyake, early Japanese-influenced sort of coat on. And I was like, I'd never wear that coat. I'd never get away with that coat. <laughs> Try to get out of Cabra West and, and down into town. But it was like this look, a, a TV. Now, that see, now, see, once you start talking about one thing, you find out that the reason for what you're talking about isn't actually the real reason. It's how you got to the, the real reason. So it's usually, again, the filter. It's through the TV, it's through the tube. What stuff were you doing? Were yeah. you drawing pictures? Yeah. Were you making music? Were you trying to break things? How mm. did that kind of come out in you? I had a tough sort of early school thing. So I would come home and set fire to things. I was an actual fire starter. I would do a lot of um, picking rubbish out of the bin and just setting fire to egg boxes. I was really fascinated by polystyrene egg boxes. I just thought they went up really quickly. And I was a compulsive liar when I was a kid. So I'd always say, no, I didn't do that. And there'd be just a mark on the wall, you know, obviously. And this really annoyed my mom and my dad, actually. They didn't get why I would say the things I would say, even though I was the only person in the house capable of doing those things. And I thought that I was in a world full of other people. And I wasn't. I was on my own. I was most definitely on my own as a kid. Uh, And there was a lot of drawing. So I remember spending a lot of time with a lot of bingo books because my mom said it was okay. Go on, do draw me this, that and the other. And, you... and then of course the TV would come on and there was that influence of just this moving f- image, movies. And my, my, you know, the whole thing, my dad brought me to movies sometimes. My mom brought me to the movies a lot very early on. And that's, I got a really big love of movies from, from them, those early experiences of just being in the cinema, which is such a magical sort of, sort of place. So yeah, took all of that home, uh, there was a bit of tape recording, I remember me talking into a tape recorder. There was music, obviously the radio was a huge thing for me. Radio was a massive influence on me early on. So I was, again, listening to these DJs at, in nightclubs, aged 15, 14, 13, on a little sort of transistor radio underneath the pillow so that nobody downstairs could hear it. But I would listen to like early broadcasts. That was my connection out of the world and into this. as a photographer you just said that you're more of an observer observationist yeah storyteller the photography just as a genre um when did that become appealing to you and what was your first kind of foray into a camera you know the the first camera you got and i had just about forgotten that there was this massive history on my mom's side of everybody in her family having cameras so my uncle Tony had a full-on fucking developing thing in the, in the house in Ballyferma, and we didn't know about it. 
we weren't so I wasn't allowed to look at the cameras I wasn't allowed to pick them up or there was some sort of a block there and I, I really regret not knowing about this huge amount of time but uh, what I did know about was that there was a suitcase of photographs underneath the stairs out in 180 Carnlock so for me I knew that that was there and I had to ask permission is there any chance I can go through all these photographs because I was fascinated with this sort of still thing now this is the same sort of time I think I don't know dates but like I went to, to school and I met a Christian brother who had a German Shepherd dog and he had this art class and this Christian brother started showing us slides transparencies on the wall of the woodwork room of like Jack Louis David and Angra and all this Renaissance work and then Monet and Picasso really influenced me and Kandinsky really influenced me and I was listening to Jesus and the Mary Chain at the same time and the Smiths and it was just like this explosion of like sound, audio, visual sort of after school thing that absolutely changed the way I felt about and didn't even know it but absolutely felt much much better as a person seeing all of this work and benefiting from all this sound and and then it then reminded me of that there was this history in my house and I slowly but surely started to piece together that these were two sort of separate things of one one movement that I was actually in the middle of so taking photographs didn't really really happen till much much later when I actually physically left home around 19 I didn't really get the chance to to have a camera up until around that time so I think when I got into town and I lost my virginity I then started finding out about record shops, specific record shops, and then I found a camera shop, a second-hand place, and I bought a Practica. So I remember talking to Glennie Friedman about this, and his first camera was a, was a Practica. So he was quite... It was really lovely talking to him about that whole thing, and he showed me a photograph of him with the Practica and a broken arm, because that was the day he didn't want to be a skateboarder. He found that out. So for me, I wanted to be an artist then I let that word come into my mind artist and then I put it out of my mind because I turned around and I, I thought I would see my father standing beside me going who the fuck do you think you are like you know you need to get a proper job you know so this whole thing of being a other than an, a working man who went to Hill 16 like he did or you know 35 years with the same guys get a gold watch all of that stuff broken marriage sickness you drink you know processed food all of that was my supposed thing you know and i've done a lot of that but i've also not done the thing that he did which is stay in the one place so for me the the idea of being a photographer was very being an artist being a dj being a person in in a in a specific place to do something to say something came from the fact that there was all of this history in my mum's side. So being a photographer and, and, and seeing photographs and, and school into practice and actually doing it and reading a book, Darkroom Techniques, I still have it at home. Really brilliant book. Uh, just how to, how to develop your own 120, 35 mil, all that stuff, really, really simple agitation. And that all really inspired me to think about Imagine getting to the point where you could do all of that. Could I jump in there? You're, yeah. You're throwing out some really heavy topics here, which I, I think are very dense with significance. And I think 
you represent somebody who has who has taken the creative spirit into your heart <coughs> and you've walked the walk like there's so many voices of dissent I'm hearing that you could have easily just copped out and said do you know what I need just to get that office job and satisfy whatever um, destiny that was predetermined for you by another person and what I, I really admire is your courage to walk that lonely path towards self-actualization which whichever version of that in your very early ages because it's such a fragile period in your life the kind of post-teen early adult era to and also bear in mind for people who don't know <laughs> what age you are now and what I am you know this is 20 odd years ago now this isn't post-millennial everyone has got access to the internet like this is when it was difficult to do this stuff and there was no digital technology and the prospect of being an artist was must have been quite scary interested as what resources were you were you tapping into then as a person like were you just so dogged to to not to do what your dad was doing or was it was it was it something else like was it was it a rebellion or was it a I don't think it's a rebellion when you're you're the winner plain and simple I think you can't be in a fight if, if you're 150 yards ahead of the race in in your mind you have this thing in your head that you know that you've seen another world so why would I be preoccupied with a world that makes no sense? Just distilling that down to that one line actually made perfect sense around 17, 18. It absolutely just made perfect sense. And I stood at the end of the table in the house and I said, guys, you just don't understand. Like, funnily enough, they was like, what is it that we don't understand? And for me, that was, that was just so... I was like, see, see what I mean? If you have this thing in your head that you know that there's something weirdly different going on the chances are you are weirdly different it's because I didn't feel the other way now I took a job one one or two jobs where I was working with people in an office every day and I was like please can can I leave like I remember just and they were like no, but you just started the job, and I, was, I need to get out of here. It's just like bellboy, you know. It was like it was like it was like watching Quadrifini, you know. And the reason why was because I had been advertised to. I'd been duped into thinking that this is the world that you actually, what you're imagining, exists. I had to sort of get out of Carrer. I had to get out of Dublin Seven and into town because I heard something was happening in there, and it was music, and it was it was girls, and it was. It was, you know, the image that I was led to believe that I was Jew because I was 150 yards ahead of everybody in Cabra. In my head, I just didn't have the shoes and the hat for it. So all of that time was, was like the, the distilling of all of these various mm. different influences and trying to, to make sense. I think you've, you've spoken in what you just talked about there a lot about the city and your relationship with the city as a kind of a magical entity that exists beyond yes. the suburbs. I'm kind of jumping forward a little bit now to to your work as, as an active photographer, observer. And something that just occurred to me from looking at a lot of your photographs is that there seems to be 
a kind of a hidden narrative in the characters that you shoot, which uh, as, a, as a third party looking at your work, there seems to be a, a, like a longing or a kind of a pensive reflectiveness in their gazes and their poses that maybe I'm way off the mark here, but I feel that like you're trying to get at something that they're not even necessarily aware of and that you've seen this conflict within. I, I see a lot of conflict in your, in your subjects, okay? What are you trying to mine there? It's very subtle, it's very hidden, it's very fragile, right? Am I wrong, am I right? Uh, no, you're right. Yeah. You're, you're very much on the mark. It's how to explain that without seeing a photograph can be difficult. Yeah, <laughs> of course. There's this kind of suburban malaise that seems to... It's a cloud, it's, a, it's an ether that just seems to absorb these characters, right? And I think you have a very gentle touch towards them. You're not in any way being patronising because I think you've just spoken about how you sympathise immensely with their plight. The people in... The people photographs that I would take would mostly be underdogs, I think. I think they would be the, the people just getting along with, with their day. But they just happen to be in places where getting along with your day is, is actually quite a trial. You're wandering around in not the affluent places of any of the cities that I've shot in, specifically New York or Dublin, mostly. But... Yes, they have this tone of voice, these, these individuals, in this space. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by space. Uh, and when there's somebody in a photograph, it's there usually to help punctuate the fact that the space exists. So the space is about where I would, would like to be. I would, I would select and crop photographs of people that represent how I felt right at that time when I seen it. And they're always saying more or less the same thing, which is, help me. Help me get through the day, get through the situation, the world the way it is, uh, the way we are so rude to each other, the way it's okay to just comment how ridiculous your idea is. I'm supposedly, supposedly in a documentarian, so I'm, I'm looking at the way people are losing things in a nanosecond of them making this that photograph and I have it in my thing just to kind of absolutely sum up what you're saying <laughs> via audio there's the shot there so but, but I'll describe it right there's, it's a photograph on the corner of of Dame Street and Georgia Street and there's a girl holding the back of a boy's head and then he's wearing this really interesting kind of hoodie and then there's another girl in the mix as well and there's a bus and it's it's complicated shot but I've seen it actually happening in front of me. Most of these are m m really amazing sort of moments where mm -hmm. I walk into a photo. I've learned how to walk into a photo. Now, how do you do that? Well, you learn that it's about to happen to you and you have your camera ready. That's my job is to try to catch this mm -hmm. and just say, well, yeah, give us a helping hand. Like... And there it is. There's her hand on the back of his neck. Now, it's classic haircut. He's got this new kind of shaved back of the head thing. So I don't know what she was saying or doing to him because it was really noisy. 
but I think it really summed up perfectly composed, mm-hmm. I might add. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really summed up Dublin. It's like a Caravaggio, you know, the, the taking of uh, Christ. <laughs> it, absolutely. You know. But look at that yellow jutting into that. And I, I see all these details in things, which is how, how do you determine where the camera frame stops? And then you shoot that. And then you know what happened outside the inside. Mm. And that's part and parcel of taking photographs. For me, is is that experience of remembering that I was there uh, and the, the sympathy that lies with, with your frame because you have... Like, look at the history of photography. There's so many of them who are... Like William Eggleston, Gary Winogrand, Brass Eye, really amazing practitioners who knew when to wait and see and then record because they felt it, it belonged to history for them. I feel the same way about Dublin. I feel the same way about Dublin people. I think they've been perceived a certain way and I don't see that that's kind of fair. So my job is to sort of record now as much as I can, even though I can't take photos all the time because it's, it, it's very heavy for me to do that. Um, and I get into trouble. But to see the world of Dubliners representing my feeling. I feel a resonant appreciation of, of your subject matter. When I look at a city, I look at the shadow the gaps in between the buildings, the, the crisp bag, uh, blowing down the road, the, the broken fence, and these kind of, the broken city, for me, seems to tell a truth much more than I, the centrepiece I trophy see the, photo. I see the yeah. broken city. I'm absolutely in, in favour of the shadow. But the shadow has been, is, is a residue of, of a city that's cracked. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think most prolific, interesting outputting cities are the ones that are broken so look at look at the musical output of new york or the musical output of belfast or the musical output of berlin as opposed to zurich shanghai i'm wondering does this pr version of what it means to human this this kind of idealistic unattainable as we spoke about earlier, this this is what it means to be human and to have a career and to be successful and this is the material wealth you shall a- attain. And in fact, it's not like that at all. It's 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 it much more exist. real. I think there's a certain kind of reality to the photographs you take, in that they're not contrived. They are observant. They're they're quiet. They capture something that exists without man's intervention so like sometimes you shoot a pavement or a streetscape and it just is it just exists and nobody's shouting at you to say this is beautiful look at this you know i find hilarious that you know in cities foreign cities you have kodak moments where tourists are going around and there are these like sticks in the ground that say kodak moment and that you are meant to stand there and take a photograph i i get the sense that I find this amusing that, you know, the, the type of tourist who gets off the bus and they all shuffle along, <laughs> yeah. right? I can imagine you... I like shooting them, actually. Just ...being there to shoot them. Getting off the bus, yeah. Yeah, like you yeah. would be shooting the, the crumpled tour agenda that's on the floor or the suitcases that are coming out of the back of yeah. the bus, you know? Yeah. I love taking I think... photos of people taking photographs of Kodak moments. <laughs> Do you? Yeah, that's one of my favourite things is to shoot people while they're shooting mm. Because I've, I've got them by the bollocks, like, 
they can't do anything because they're they've stopped breathing. They're like, oh, I have to get this photo because my son wants to see where I was last yeah, week. Yeah. Bam, I'm in. Yeah, and yeah. I do it all the time, and it freaks mm. people out. And I, I sort of, yeah. I always come to, oh, I like it's your like jacket, or I like your hat, or you know, I always say, uh, I'm sorry. I always say I'm sorry if somebody mm. turns around and goes, "Why are we taking photographs of?" So I'm sorry, but it's what? Why you're should, in the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was taking a photograph of the mountain in the background. No, you look nice. Um, I always say you look nice. I'm interested in your day-to-day -day rituals, like as a person who, who takes photographs, who plays music, who writes words, what challenges are you up against in respect to your engagement with the day-to-day -day mundane things? Yeah. And how do you sustain the life as an artist? I'm not necessarily talking about how you earn your money, but just the day-to-day -day challenges and how do you integrate the creative discipline or do you struggle with it? Like, is it something? Yeah, no, I do. I yeah. do tend to struggle with it. Yeah, it depends on their day, obviously. So I would, I would be down. I would find myself down sometimes. So I wouldn't be really interested in going out at all. So I, I like Monday, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays. I have a tendency to be quite quiet uh, and stay in, or walk the dog, or do little. Uh, weekends, I would DJ Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights mostly, and now I'm being asked to do something on a Sunday. So you're sort of the the residue of drinking a little bit too much, uh, and tiredness and spills into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But I've always used meetings with people as a springboard to do another thing during that day, uh, and you you sort of use. Like almost like this meeting, I would go home and I would think, okay, I just had a really great chat with Jim about taking photographs, and I go out and I dump a, a full roll on on a the spire or something, you know, people mm. standing around the spire, or a couple of other ideas that I've I've had in the last while where, you I walk the dog around Stephen's Green twice most days, so you're kind of like thinking and walking at the same time, and you go, imagine if I could uh, shoot the residue of leaves on the ground when they come up because they, they leave a dye in the concrete or you know something really really simple where somebody's called you and said well can you do this you know particular set of stuff and you go yeah 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 and then I would take photos as well as do that so I just did some work with Brown Thomas so I'm filming the girls that were modeling all the clothes were sort of classic models but I would try to catch them making faces or try to do something a little bit off the cut and use the, the opportunity to, to shoot something. So whilst you're working, you're thinking, okay, I could take photos, you know, and on my Instagram feed, I would always use sort of, as I'm working or doing things, that as a thing. Like we've spent the last week in the gallery for Little White Lies and Angel, who runs Photo Ireland brilliantly, took an apple out of his thing and he put it on top of the logo of his Apple computer on the middle of the desk with a bite taken out of it. And I took a photograph of that and I just thought that was super clever in its sort of anti-ish. So that's where photos come as well. Sometimes I don't set out to take photos, but a lot of the time I would set out and say, well, if I go down to the spire now, 
there's always people standing around the spire waiting on somebody to turn up to see them and they look desperately sad because they haven't turned up yet. Boom, you're in, mm-hmm. you're in. So you just wander around the spire. Like, and you could easily dump four old film on that. Or go out to the airport and you'd see people waiting on people trying to come in through the doors and their flight's late and it says on the thing, oh, bombs. the flight's late, boom, beautiful. something that's come up in other conversation I've had is the relationship the artist has with technology and in and in this kind of world now era we live in with the internet and what it the possibilities it offers and then the the obstructions it puts in front of you what are your thoughts on the internet as a, an agent of change and a, as a tool for creativity is it something you you see as is great or is something that has potential you know, negative consequences for your process? For my processes, uh, it's been an amazing tool to get the work across to so many other kind of people. Facebook kind of helped me get the work out to people that wouldn't have seen it before outside of a gallery setting. And I think galleries clammed up because they felt, oh, this year all our photography projects will be about forensics or you know, and it, for me, that was really limiting in trying to get work to people because photography on a, on a level is quite niche as opposed to, I suppose, performance art or visual arts on a level of, say, the National Gallery. So getting work in photographs into gallery spaces just wasn't the way forward. So the way forward for, for me came about when I met Richard Seabrook and he, we, we sat and started talking about doing a magazine together candy and then the sweet talks came from that too but this was an amazing way you know the pdf had been around since the early 90s so how about doing a magazine of just content and interviews and getting that out to people really really early sort of versions of that downloadable magazine thing we were there but we were doing it out of dublin and we were getting something in the region of 50 60 thousand downloads depending on the the time of year it was. I think we did 12 magazines and some of them were like 200 and something pages each. Great amount of content. Look back over them only there recently. Really fresh still. And So the idea of getting work out through, say, Cargo or Behance or, you know, in this case, my own website via social media, that was that was really interesting as a thing to do as a an experiment because you could self publish obviously for obvious reasons, but every time you took a photograph, you thought, well, this could end up being the sleeve of a of an album. Just the idea of getting your work to another level where it would be it would be seen was quite an interesting thing as as an energy to, to as an engine to to continue work. Um, you know, I view a lot of self-discipline uh, when it comes to, you know, the, the incidental side of social media. Or do you jump in uh, with, you know, open arms and go, look, you, you take the good with the bad? Or In my head, if I can make something once a day that cuts through all the shit 
that there is because there is a lot of shit online. The whole posing, I'm out, I'm having a great time, you're not here, I'm getting on with my life sort of thing. And, and for me, I think that has sort of ruined photography in a way that there's no intimacy, there's no, it's all, it's balls out, you know. And that's sort of, it's sort of mundane now when you just keep seeing photos of people with, you know, looking a certain way, standing in a certain way. And I suppose it's the same as the same, if that suitcase of photographs underneath the stairs, there was a load of photographs of me, me dad sitting there with pints, you know. I suppose there's not much difference, is there, really? You tell me. I don't know, actually, now that I say that. I think yeah. I could be wrong. I think we're just doing the same thing over and over every 30 years. We still like the same shit music. We still like the same stupid clothes that we regret wearing when we see the photo 20 years later. But yet we haven't worked it out to not do those things because we're not progressing enough, fast enough. And that there's only individual people who can mm. punctuate all of that by saying, doing. And I think the internet just shows that up even more now, is that you have this voice in your head uh, and you're a hundred yards ahead. So the internet's kind of helped people realign that they're right because there's so much evidence of wrong when you just look at the the deluge of, of information and it you just need to be able to navigate through that. It leads me to a question that I think maybe summarizes everything we spoke about and that's your own personal growth and your your philosophy for living. I don't know if you have one in a kind of a snappy statement but you know, twenty odd years into your career as a as an artist, as a creative, how has your worldview changed, or has it? How have you progressed spiritually, emotionally, and how do you, you know, continue to engage with the artistic process as as a kind of an expression of your your own personal journey? I go with expression, but I think it's also it's helping. It it's 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 meditative. It's like in the sense that I would like to use it as a way of healing. I'm getting worse, I think. I think I'm, I'm not as funny as I used to be. Um, I would like to, be, to go back to the funny days. Um, I'm angry. I get very angry about things. Um, the reason why I'm angry is because I'm not as young as I, I am, obviously. And I don't care about being angry. That's making me angry. Do you get that? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm sick and tired of, of um, things being wrong. You know, it's really weird. I just see things, so many things being wrong. Like, why would you do that? You, you know, I'd like stop people in the middle of the street. And I'd be like, why did you walk out in front of that car? Like, my dog knows, Lolly, she knows when... The, the orange man says it's okay to go across. I've trained her how to do this. And then some people walk out before that happens, right in front of cars and bikes. And, and that, that really angers me. It, it's really annoying. It's also none of your business what they think of you. That's Marky Smith from The Fall. Is that how you would describe your, yeah, your worldview? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay. It's a situation where I'm... I know this might <laughs> sound quite rude, but just go fuck yourself. Like, really and truly, like, go... I'm going to keep doing this because if I don't do it, I, I actually go a little bit mad. And when I mean mad, I get a bit annoyed that I'm not representing 
they are formed properly uh, because I think I can, I think I know I can, I think I've, if I go through the magazine, the little paper that I made, I've, 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 seen, I've seen stuff in there that isn't exactly the same stuff as I've seen in, say, a book by William Eggleston or Vivian Meyer, or, but at a different place, at a different time, I would have taken the same fucking photographs. I would have. I know I would have. If I was, if I, if I had known Brassi or William Eggleston or Gary Winogrand, I would have loved to go drinking with Gary Winogrand. I know that he would have, he would have told me to go fuck myself as well, because you're taking the same photos I'm taking, you're seeing the same things I'm seeing, and and for me that's enough of a reason to 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 try keep making work that makes sense to me, because. I'm in a situation, especially after this week, it's a very interesting week for me in the sense that I've, we've just done this work and I'm a mess, you know, I am a mess physically and mentally, but I, I'm doing really great work, which is sort of quite interesting. That whole thing is, I don't think you'll ever have two things, your, you know, your personal stuff is, is not going to be as good as your work stuff at the same time. I worked that out. So you're sort of like looking at, okay, this is in good shape. At least I could pretend to hide behind this. And it's, oh yeah, yeah, I'm doing this, this, this. Yeah, 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 I'm really busy at the moment. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you go home and you go, fuck! You know, <laughs> you know, making copious amounts of cups of tea. You know, because you think that's going to fix things. Or if you just sit down or... But it's great, the little, little flinches of of sort of talking to people like yourself or, or people I've worked with or, or sold photographs to and they get it. That makes it worthwhile to keep to keep going. But there's an anger behind that. That things aren't as they should be and they will never be. They will never be the way I think they should be. Because it'll it'll be always like that. And that's the, the fuel that keeps keeps the work going, I think. It it matters not what they think of you. Fuck them. On that note, Aidan, I think we'll uh, we'll, we'll stop this conversation for now. <laughs>